Well, good afternoon to you here and there, wherever you are. It does look a little bare here today on one side, as Bill said. It looks like it will tilt, but uh, we have several still families still out traveling here and there, and uh, I suppose they'll all be back by next week or the week after. This is sometimes a good time of the year to travel for different ones because work slows down and so on and so forth. A little report on uh, Jace. Uh, He's improving considerably. Uh, He needs quite a bit of therapy still on his leg. His memory of past things is improving. He still has some short-term memory difficulties and problems, but uh, we could continue to pray that his recovery would continue. I just heard a report that uh, there are many, many UFOs apparently being seen over central Texas, and uh, I guess it's been on Larry King Live the last couple of nights, and uh, I had an eyewitness report from central Texas this morning that uh, there are jet fighter planes just crisscrossing the skies down around that area and little black helicopters flying all over the place. So it apparently is a big deal. Uh, I don't usually read articles or watch things about UFOs. They say they're unidentified flying objects. Uh, I think the identity is fairly obvious. Uh, I identify most of that as demon activity and therefore I don't pay much attention to it. I feel I need to be concentrating on the things of God and what he's doing far more than I do on what Satan and his minions are doing. However, it is a reality, and there are places that are known for this kind of thing, like Roswell, New Mexico, that's on talk radio all the time about the demons, not the demons, I don't guess they call them that, but aliens and so on. and then you have sightings at O'Hare, unless we did, I guess, a year or so ago, by pilots and isolated uh, things seen by air, airline pilots, especially at night, of um, things that travel and put out a lot of light. Uh, most of it, I believe, is Satan's demons appearing as angels of light. So I guess Central Texas right now is a hotbed of demonism. There was a prediction made by some seer, a lady, uh, on December 11th that uh, UFO activity over Texas would make big news shortly. And that has happened. Well, that woman obviously has tapped into the demon world and knew ahead of time that that would be. Uh, one Catholic priest, at least, has been quoted as saying, we must embrace this. Uh, So the churches are beginning to maneuver uh, around, and I think that this is probably the beginnings of Satan making his move, and that they will increase, and more lights will be seen in the skies, and eventually you're going to see a great light, and everyone will think it's Jesus returning. I believe that's probably the way that will come down, because Scripture clearly says that when Christ does return, that 
It will be with great light and will be seen from all around the earth. So Satan has a counterfeit for everything. I think he's planning a counterfeit tribulation, a counterfeit millennium, a counterfeit Jerusalem, a counterfeit temple, a counterfeit Jesus, and the whole nine yards of what God is doing. He is a very, very clever, manipulative counterfeiter. So I think that we will see these things increase. Of course, Scripture says we'll see signs and wonders in the heaven. But remember that Satan and the demons are going to create uh, great signs and wonders in the heavens as well. So how do you tell one from the other? Ultimately, it boils down to truth. If the truth of God is not there, then it is not of God. So we have to analyze these things as they happen, understand what they are. I don't want to spend, as I said, a lot of time uh, researching it. I don't want to be curious about demons. I don't want to cozy up to them in any way. In fact, for the most part, I choose to ignore it. I have had enough encounters in years in the ministry with demons uh, on a very close level and people that were demon-possessed, and it is always a very unclean, wretched uh, experience. And I don't want to be anywhere near them. <laughs> so we need to be very careful about being curious about those things and spending too much time examining information about it. Uh, if we know what it is, then what are we supposed to do? Resist the devil that he flee from us. Not cozy up to it. So, yes, we may see some news reports. Uh, let's understand them for what they are, but let's not be too enamored of them and spend a great deal of time exploring that stuff because it is dangerous. It is dangerous. Another interesting item that came up yesterday, uh, as you know from Scripture, and it, I think it ties in with the sermonette very well, Scripture shows us that there will be a Cyrus come at the end, uh, that he will help the spiritual Jews, the church, that he will do things that will help uh, prove that God is God. Those things we read in Scripture, they must come to pass. So we are anticipating a Cyrus to come and help the church and do those things which Cyrus anciently did. That's Scripture. I don't need evidence in hand to believe those scriptures. I can believe it in faith that God is going to provide such a thing and how he will do it because the scripture clearly says so. Uh, some people say, well, you've got to show me some evidence. Well, okay, if you want to walk by sight, eventually the evidence will show. But for those who will walk in faith, you go by what scripture says and you believe it will happen. It's like somebody said to me some time back, and I've quoted this a time or two, where are those walls of fire you said would be around the villages of Jerusalem in the end time? And I said, when they're needed, they'll be here. I believe that because Scripture says that. But until they're needed for protection of God's people, why have them? That time will come. We have 
examined many, many scriptures in this little organization which show that God is going to bless his people at the end and all the detail about how it is going to happen is outlined in the prophecies of the Bible. And I believe those things. I believe the deserts will bloom as a rose before the kingdom of God is here for a small group of people. Those things are in Scripture, and they're in the context prior to the millennium. So I don't need evidence. You don't need evidence. You've acted on some of the Scriptures that God has showed you and done something about it. And others are going to do the same thing. I believe God is going to put together a 10% remnant of his people at the end time because the scriptures clearly show me that. I don't have to see it before I believe it because the scripture says it. So we either believe God and we believe what he says or we don't. We either walk by sight and say, I'll believe that when I see it. Or we say, God said it, therefore I know it's going to happen, and I'm going to walk that direction. That's just the way it is. Anyway, that's a sidelight. In a way, uh, we are looking for a Cyrus that God tells us will come and help the church. And I announced last week that the Jews in that Jerusalem have asked George Bush to be their Cyrus, to deliver them to help them build a temple. And now, just last night, I read an article that said that the country of Iran is planning on destroying the grave of the original Cyrus. Um, I don't know that that has any particular meaning. It's just that it's ironic and coincidental, perhaps, with what we expect to happen from Scripture and what the Jews are expecting of George Bush. At the same time, a country of Iran, against whom we as a nation are opposed at the moment, uh, has decided to destroy the gravesite of the original Cyrus. I think it was with a dam. I don't remember detail, but it's going to cover it up with a, with a lake. So the plot thickens. Even as the Jews ask for Cyrus to deliver them from the Iranians, the Arabians, in the Arab world, they are themselves destroying the gravesite of an honored man of their past. Interesting the way it's coming down, I guess. Don't know exactly where it'll go. Anyway, let's get back to the book of Nehemiah. I plan to finish it today. I think that I can accomplish that. We left off with chapter 10. Remember that this was a time of renewal, a time of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, and that a renewal of God, or toward God, was occurring. Now this happened quite a few times in Israel's history. You know, they would commit themselves to God, and they would drift away from God. They would recommit themselves to God under a righteous king, and then they would drift away again. So they continually recommitted and fell, recommitted and fell. And here in the days of Nehemiah, when they'd come out of Babylon, they'd already put up the temple. Now they were building the wall of Jerusalem. And through Nehemiah, they had begun to read the law, as we saw last week, and began to understand it. 
And then they all set their hand to renew a covenant with God. Now, they already knew the law. They already had been exposed to it. But they had drifted away from it, just as a church has drifted away. And it is time, in a time of great Laodiceanism, for God's people to absolutely recommit themselves to God. To his law, to his ways. And I think Nehemiah is written here for that purpose. It's a historical record of a renewal time. And it was very important to those people, just as it is to us. We had drifted from God and become very, very Laodicean. Very spiritually proud, full of ego, and thought we were okay. God blew us apart. And in so doing, he is telling us we need to turn to him with our whole heart. We've been preaching that now for years. It's very, very difficult to do. So they made a list and wrote their seal, their signature on it, to recommit themselves to serve God with all their hearts. It was a sealing. We're in the process of a sealing right now. God is sealing the 144,000. We're putting our name on the line, committing ourselves to God. And certainly, uh, I need to recommit myself to his ways and ways that I had drifted from over the years. And that's what our message basically is. Repent. Turn to God with your whole heart. That's what they were trying to do. Now, before we pass on, I, I went through chapter 10 and, and over a few verses into chapter 11. I want to summarize quickly here uh, what they did or what they focused on at this time of renewal. Uh, that is found in verse 29 of chapter 10. They clave to their brethren, their nobles, and it into a curse in, and into an oath. Very serious. A curse and an oath. They'd be cursed if they didn't do what they were setting their hand to, and they were swearing to God what they would do. And that was to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and to do all the commandments of the Eternal, our Lord, and His judgments and His statutes. That's what they recommitted themselves to do. Now, there were certain elements of that that they deemed more important, I suppose, than others, areas where they had drifted, and they list three major ones here, and I, I'll recount those and summarize quickly. Verse 28, All they that had separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, everyone having knowledge and having understanding. So they even separated from wives and children because God had made it very clear that Israel was not to intermarry. Well, Israel fell into that very frequently. And when they recommitted here, they corrected that problem. They put away wives and children, which was a very emotional and traumatic matter. But if they were... To be pure before God, it had to be true Israelites. And some were put from the priesthood, we saw earlier, because they could not prove they were Israelites, genealogically. So we have to separate ourselves from this world, even as they did in marriage, we have to separate 
emotionally, mentally, spiritually, and in every way from the influence of this world. God makes that very clear to us. So what they did on a physical level there, we have to do on a spiritual level today. Renewal also, verse, uh, well, 30 is a part of that, that we would no longer give our daughters to the people of the land nor take their daughters for our sons. That is echoed in the New Testament, that we are not to marry outside the church. It's very, very clear not to become unequally yoked with unbelievers. That is absolutely contrary to everything God says and stands for. It is disobedience to God to marry outside his people if we are a part of his people. So it's not just Old Testament stuff. We are told not to do that. And then the second area was in verse 31. If the people of the land were to bring any food on the Sabbath day, and it mentions the Sabbath and the seventh year, uh, so that included the whole system of tithing and the seventh year release, and included the weekly Sabbath, and it included the holy days. We know from Exodus that the Sabbath is a sign between God and his people. So they wanted to be very, very careful about the Sabbath then. So that was another area of renewal. We got to the place we were pretty lax with the Sabbath in the church, people doing all manner of things on the Sabbath. And it is not a day to seek our own pleasures, but a day to seek God. So that is the second area that was truly important. And then in verse 35 through 39, it shows the whole system of tithing, uh, they went through first fruits. They went through giving the tithe to the Levites. Into uh, verse 37, uh, tithes of our ground to the Levites, that the same Levites might have the tithes in all the cities of our tillage. So that's first tithe, obviously, the priesthood tithe. And then the Levites gave a tithe of that to the house of God uh, to run the government through Aaron's uh, seed, the high priest. So, they renewed that. Then we see in chapter 11, what we saw last week, that they cast lots to bring one of ten to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city, and the other nine parts to dwell in other cities around. And the people blessed all the men that willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. So, there were volunteers. Remember at the first part of the book of Ezra, that Cyrus the king asked for volunteers to go build the temple. And in Haggai, it talks about God stirring people who will then volunteer here at the end to come work in the temple of God. Zechariah 6 says the same thing. It says they will come from afar to work in the temple of God. So again, these will be people who come voluntarily, having been stirred of God, to come and do that. But it is one of ten. Again, God says a tithe will come, a remnant will come. He called a lot of people here at the end time, but he is only going to stir one-tenth, one loyal tenth, to come build the temple and to build Jerusalem. He makes it very clear in many, many scriptures, from Isaiah 1 to Zechariah to various other places, that that is what he is going to do. In other words, God believes in tithing, and he will have his tithe of his people. That's just the way it is. 
Now, I want to tie that. I mentioned it last week in passing, but I want to tie that a little bit with uh, Malachi 3 and 4. Because here we have a time where the ministry has been off track and God addresses that uh, in Malachi. Now, it is not a book, as some would have you believe, written specifically to the ministry or the ministry alone. Notice chapter 1, verse 1, the burden of the word of the eternal to Israel by Malachi. So it is written to the whole church and, for that matter, to the whole nations of Israel. Now, he addresses the ministry first because they have gone astray and offer the unclean on the altar. Remember in Haggai where it said the priest should make a difference between the clean and the unclean? And the ministry today is not, for the most part, doing that. This world is totally unclean. Satan has deceived the whole world. And we need to depart from that deception and turn loose of the world. The ministry is not teaching that very much. But down in chapter 3, he says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the eternal whom you seek shall suddenly come to his church, to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in, behold, he shall come, says the Lord of hosts. But who may, who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier and so on, and to purge us as silver and gold, <coughs> that they may offer to the eternal an offering in righteousness. <coughs> and I believe this is talking about him coming, as he says in Zechariah 2, to his temple, to his church, uh, before his return at the first resurrection. Now he's going to come to all Israel at the time of the first well, the time of the millennium, actually. But notice, he tells us the things to do. Verse 4, Then shall the offering of Jude and Jerusalem be pleasant to the eternal, as in the days of old, as in former years. Now, he does not appreciate what the church is offering today, and says, I don't even want to hear those prayers. But when repentance comes, we turn to God with our whole heart and commit ourselves totally to him, then he is going to begin to bless as he never has before. And I will come near to, to you to judgment, and I will be a swift witness against sorcerers and against the adulterers and against false swearers and against those that oppress the hireling, the widow, and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right, and fear not me, says the eternal of hosts, speaking there of third tithe, and what assistance we might give. Uh, a lot of people are turning away from third tithe. They're turning away even from second tithe or the festival tithe, and they're certainly turning away from first tithe, which God has set for himself and given to the Levites or to the ministry. I am the eternal, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. He says, even from the days of your fathers, you are gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return. Now, what is he calling for? He's calling for a time of renewal, a time of repentance, a time of returning to him. Here at the end is what he's calling for. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Eternal of hosts. 
Now that's what the people in Nehemiah were doing under the leadership of Nehemiah, was turning to God. But you say, wherein shall we return? Well, what, what ways? What do you mean return to you? We're in your church. God gives an important example. Now here's a time again where God is calling for a renewal. One of the three main things they talked about when they renewed in Nehemiah's time was the tithing system, the whole system. Now what does God say about the end time? And this is clearly end time. Will a man rob God? He says, here's how you return. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, how have we robbed you? And he says, in tithes and in offerings. This is a sore spot with God. It's something that has to be fixed. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me even this whole people, this whole nation. The nation of Israel, and increasingly those called out into the church of God, are also beginning to rob God in that way and not doing what God says. Then he says, gives instruction, a command, if you will, bring you all the tithes into the storehouse. Now that doesn't mean you keep the festival tithe for yourself. He's talking about the tithe that you bring to the storehouse. First tithe you bring in to the storehouse of God, the church. Second tithe you keep in your gates, as the scripture clearly shows, for you to keep the festivals. Third tithe you don't bring into the storehouse. You keep it within your gates to take care of the widow, the hireling, and the fatherless, the stranger, and so on, as he says up in verse 5. Clearly in Scripture, this is delineated by use. So he's talking here specifically in verse 10, not of the third tithe of verse 5, but of the uh, tithe brought into the storehouse. That there may be meat in my house, and prove me now herewith, says the eternal of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, says the eternal of hosts. Now we've been in a time of spiritual drought and famine, and God says one of the key ingredients to having this spiritual famine turned around is that we faithfully give God that which he has claimed as his. Isn't that what this says? If you will do this, he says, I will turn it around and the drought will end. And all people shall call you blessed, for you shall be a delightsome land, says the eternal of hosts. Your words have been stout against me, says the eternal. Yet you say, what have we spoken so much against you? We don't even see ourselves how we have turned from God. We find a way to justify. We try to find a way around. We try to find a way not to do the things that God has told us clearly in his word that we must do. But we fight it. We pull away the shoulder. We stiffen our neck. This is a critical issue, brethren. I've said it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance? This is speaking here specifically about the ordinance of tithing. Some people have tithed for a while and says, well, I didn't get blessed. Doesn't do any good to keep that ordinance. Don't we walk by faith? If we don't 
do we give God, do we put Him on a time limit? I'll tithe for a month, or for a year, or for five years, and if you don't bless me by then, I'm going to quit. In attitude. I believe in God for salvation. If I haven't been changed into spirit being in, by 1972, am I going to give up? Or 75? Or 82? Or whatever year we pick through the years? Am I going to give up and say, well, I guess God isn't going to give me salvation. I might as well go the way of the world. No. We can't put a time limit on God. He will come when he chooses to come. And we, we must wait until that time. Endure to the end to be saved. We commit ourselves to God's way to tithe until we die. Because God says so. We don't put him on the clock and say you have 15 minutes or 30 hours or 6 months or 5 years or 10 to bless me or I'm just going to depart from this ordinance. But that's what it says people would do here in verse 14. We need to repent if we have that attitude. We need to accept God's words. And that you have walked mournfully before the eternal of hosts. Such a burden to obey God's ways. And now we call the proud happy, yea, they that work wickedness are set up, yes, they that tempt God are even delivered. So we find a justification, and in our own minds we deliver ourselves. Just like in Revelation 3 it said Laodiceans would say, I'm not naked and blind, I understand, I know, I'm righteous, I'll be in a place of safety. Verse 16, Then they that feared the eternal spoke often one to another, and the eternal hearkened. And heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Eternal and that thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, says the Eternal of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son that serves him. Then shall you return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serves God and him that serves him not. We have to at some point make a delineation. Now, talks about the day coming when Christ will return. And he gives us some parting uh, information here in verse 4 of chapter 4. This is truly talking about the time Christ returns and the wicked are uh, ashes under the feet of the righteous. Verse 4, Remember you the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded to him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. This is speaking to the end-time church just before Christ returns. He just mentioned his return in verses 2 and 3 and tells us to remember the laws of Moses. Now, isn't that not what we're reading in Nehemiah? That they set themselves under a curse and an oath to obey the things that Moses told them to do. And here for the end-time, two of the three things that were mentioned in Nehemiah, the tithes and the law of Moses are mentioned. doesn't mention the Sabbath and the Holy Days particularly because most of the church, I think, are keeping those. But God points out what must be done. And tithing is forefront in that. 
to having the spiritual famine removed. Now, I think that it is on both a physical level of our money and it is on a spiritual level that he wants 10% of his faithful people to return to him and come work and build his temple and to build Jerusalem. That's what he wishes of us. And he is going to stir those who will be faithful to come and do that. So we see a parallel there between the end time and this story back in the book of Nehemiah. So let's pick it up then in verse 3 of Nehemiah 11 and go on. Now these are the chief of the province that dwelt in Jerusalem, but in the cities of Judah dwelt everyone in his possession in their cities, to wit Israel, the priests, the Levites, the Nethanims, and the children of Solomon's servants, and so on. So it is very similar. God will probably bring 10 per, and he's going to bring 10% back. Some may live on the original site of Jerusalem, and others will live in villages around. Zechariah says that Jerusalem must be built as towns without walls, with much men and cattle there. So the story here is very, very close to what we read about at the end. Uh, then he names names of people and so on. I think we'll skip on over that. I don't see a particular reason to focus on it at the moment. Uh, going to chapter 12. <coughs> now these are the priests and the Levites that went up with Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel and Joshua, and so on. Now this is again is mentioned in Haggai and those two at the end. Zerubbabel and uh, Joshua are identified as the two witnesses of the end time. So this is a historical record of the first fulfillment of that, and Haggai and Zechariah project then the final fulfillment of that. Then it names names again of those that came. So let's skip on over that and go on down to verse 27. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites out of all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to keep the dedication with gladness, both with thanksgivings and with singing, with cymbals, psalteries, and with harps. God shows us, I think, that the wall of Jerusalem will be built in troublous times there in Daniel 9, and troublous times are coming upon us very quickly now. So the building of Jerusalem has to come at some time in the next few years, I believe probably within the next uh, three, four, five years. That will have to be done. <laughs> That's my guess, not a prediction. But he tells us how to go about it. We're to come singing before God with instruments. And the sons of the singers gather themselves together both out of the plain country round about Jerusalem. Uh, if you examine the Jerusalem in the Middle East, it's a hilly country there. It is not a plain. There's not a plain around it for a good long way away. Um, maybe we need to be looking for a Jerusalem that has a plain around it. And from the village of, of Netapathai, also from the house of Gilgal and out of the fields of Geba and Asmaveth, for the singers had built in them villages round about Jerusalem. There again, uh, speaking just like Zechari Zechariah 2. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves and purified the people and the gates and the wall. Uh, that reminds me of Isaiah 52, where it talks about uh, his people beginning to return and the sacrifice of Christ in chapter 53. But in the 52, it talks about, Be you clean that bear the vessels of the eternal. 
we must be purified and made clean before God. He only wants pure people. He made very sure of that on a physical level back in those days, and he's going to make sure of that on a spiritual level today. He is not going to turn Jerusalem and his temple over to be built by liars, thieves, adulterers, drunks, by uh, Sabbath breakers, non-tithers, and so on. He is going to do it. People who will follow his ways is who he's going to work with. Then I brought up the princes of Judah upon the wall and appointed two great companies of them that gave thanks, where, whereof one went on the right hand upon the wall toward the dung gate and all of this various gates that they went to, to for the dedication. They were all going to be singing together. Uh, mentions the musical instruments again in verse 35, trumpets, verse 36, musical instruments of, uh, of David, the man of God, and Ezra the scribe before them. Verse 37, at the fountain gate, which was over against them, they went up by the stairs of the city of David, at the going up of the wall above the house of David, even to the water gate eastward, and so on. Um, so they all got together then on those gates. Then in verse 43, also that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced. Our sacrifices are our prayers, uh, our songs to God, and our service to one another. So we don't offer animal sacrifices, but we have a different type of sacrifice we give. We present our bodies as a living sacrifice. They don't belong to us anymore. They belong to God. We're the slaves of Christ. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The wives also and the children rejoiced, so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard even afar off. So the time of the dedication of the new Jerusalem, uh, we'll sing will shout, merriment will be made, and it will be a very, very exciting time. Verse 44, And at that time were some appointed over the chambers for the treasures, for the offerings for the firstfruits, and for the tithes, to gather into them out of the fields of the cities the portions of the law for the priests and Levites. Uh, not just the festival tithe or the third tithe for the widow and the orphan, but this is specifically mentioned uh, for the priests and the Levites, for Judah rejoiced for the priests and for the Levites that waited, or those that stood, that stood for God, that stood up for God. And both the singers and the porters kept the ward of their God and the ward of the purification according to the commandments of David and of Solomon his son. So the things that David and Solomon asked them to do, uh, they dedicated themselves to do along with the law of Moses and so on. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the portions of the singers and the porters every day his portion. Isaiah 55 says, come and drink wine and milk without money. God is going to provide such sustenance for us and for the people who come from around the world that everything will be provided. God will take care of us. And they sanctified the holy things to the Levites, and the Levites sanctified them to the children of Aaron. So there was organization, and they made sure that things were done according to uh, the way God had set them up in Scripture. Chapter 13. On that day, they read in the book of Moses and the audience of the people. So at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, here again, they read in the book of Moses. 
just as we are told to go back to Moses uh, in Malachi 4. The spirit of Moses and Elijah are going to be very, very important at the end. Remember the transfiguration when Moses and Elijah appeared and the disciples thought this must be the millennium, Let's must be Feast of Tabernacles, we'll build booths. And he says no. But he wanted to make sure that they understood that God's witness is going to be in the spirit of Moses and the spirit of Elijah. Just as Malachi 4 says. So what we must keep the law of God. It's very clear. And nearly all religions on earth say the law of God is done away. You don't have to keep it. But the end time prophecies say you've got to keep it. So they read the book of Moses in the audience of the people, and therein was found written that the Ammonite and the Moabite should not come into the congregation of God forever. We are not to invite people in to be a part of the congregation of God who are not converted, who are not dedicating their lives completely to God and walking in the Spirit. Because they met not with the children of Israel with bread and with water, but hired Balaam against them, that he should curse them. Howbeit, our God turned the curse into a blessing. You can go back to Numbers and read that, how Balaam tried to destroy Israel, basically, and God turned it into a blessing. Now it came to pass, when they had heard the law, that they separated from Israel all the mixed multitude. Zerubbabel is going to be given the plumb line, and it's his job to sort out the converted from the unconverted those who have the Spirit of God and those who do not. Because there will always be a mixed multitude. Uh, I mean, that has always been the case. There were people who crept in unawares, remember, even in the early New Testament church. He says there will be false ministers, false priests, who creep in unawares and turn people away from God. So infiltration has always been a tool of Satan to bring in the unconverted to stir trouble, to stir strife, to cause division, to talk behind the back, to do their thing and not being cooperative with what is being done. That will always happen. And God has set up a means here at the end time in the organization that he is going to build to sort that out and to get rid of those via the plumb line and via the authority that he has given. Now, Paul had that authority, so did Peter, so did James, so did John and the Timothy and the New Testament ministry. And sometimes they had to put people out of the church of God. They had to do it because they simply were causing trouble, confusion, strife, backbiting, speaking uh, against those whom God had put in authority, and so on. You know, you'd think in a way that it would take care of itself, especially in the climate we have today in the Church of God, where there's so many, many organizations. Now, some people have. They've just gone off on their own, and if they don't like what this organization is doing, they go to another. Well, that, I think, is the honorable thing to do you don't like it in this one, go to that one and see if it's to your liking. It is dishonorable and wrong to stay in one and put it down 
talk about it and talk about those in it and put down the ministry. That is contrary to God, and God will curse for that, ultimately. He hates backbiting. He hates division. He hates confusion. So why don't people do the honorable thing, and if they don't like it, go away? Why can't we do that? Find a place you like. Or as the world has said for a long time, find the church of your choice. If you don't like the Methodist, go to the Baptist. If you don't like the Baptist, go to the Church of Christ. But be honorable. You know, if you're going to be somewhere, be there. And if you don't like it there, then be honorable and go somewhere else. It's really quite simple. But sometimes we allow ourselves to be the tools of Satan the devil, and we want a backbite, and we think there might be something there, but we still want it done our way. So we do the dishonorable thing and cause confusion and division, and that's wrong. That is not godly, it is dishonorable. Why be uncomfortable? Why be upset? Why be frustrated? Go somewhere you're comfortable. Now, I've said over and over again, I'm not going to try to make you comfortable here. I am going to try to make you as uncomfortable as I possibly can. By that, I don't mean I'm against people and trying to just make them feel bad. Don't get me wrong. I want us to be uncomfortable in our complacency. I want us to be uncomfortable in our lack of faith, uncomfortable in our lack of love, uncomfortable in our sins, and draw near to God so that he will draw near to us. We should not be comfortable in carnality or following the appetites of the flesh. We need to be uncomfortable in those things and so uncomfortable that we actually change them. That's what we need to be doing. Doesn't God say to the ten virgins, don't get comfortable, don't go to sleep, wake up, put oil in your lamp, get busy in other words. It takes effort and energy to get up and get oil in your lamp, spiritually speaking doesn't come naturally, doesn't come easily. It's hard to do. So God does not want us sleeping along comfortably at the end. He says, cry aloud, spare not, and tell my people their sins. That's what God says. Now, if I do any less than that, I have to answer to him. So that's exactly what I'm going to do, and it's what Gordon's going to do, and it's what Nelson's going to do, and it's what the sermonette givers are going to do. Just cry aloud and spare not because we were very, very comfortable in worldwide, and it led to a lackadaisical, Laodicean, self-righteous existence in the church of God. And he hates that. 2 Corinthians 7.11. Well, let's start in about, I think, about verse 9. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 9. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. Just feeling sorrowful, being upset, being full of self-pity, 
doesn't accomplish a thing. Doesn't do you any good. But that you sorrowed to repentance. Sorrow does no good unless sorrow leads to something, to changing, to not being the way that we are, but being different than what we were and are. For you were made sorry after a godly manner that you might receive damage by us and nothing. In other words, you were sorry for the way you were and you did something about it so that you didn't have to answer to us, Paul speaking here, of the ministry. Verse 10, then he explains, For godly sorrow works repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world works death. Just being sorry for the way we are and full of self-pity doesn't gain us a thing except frustration. But to be sorrowful and to then do something about it is the right kind of sorrowfulness. For behold, this self-same thing that you sorrowed after a godly sort, godly sorrow, now he's going to define what it creates. There's human sorrow that leads to frustration that doesn't gain us anything. Oh, I'm so sorry I was this, or I'm so sorry I'm that, with no intention of really doing anything about it. But godly sorrow is a totally different kind of sorrow, and here's what it produces. You sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it worked in you. Yes, what clearing of yourselves. Yes, what indignation. Yes, what fear. Yes, what vehement desire. Yes, what zeal. Yes, what revenge against Satan and his way and turning to God. In all things you have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. So he's complimenting them here that their sorrow was a godly sorrow that had caused them to be alert and awake full of zeal, uh, whatever they were doing, they were doing with their might. They were actually working at changing themselves, not to be as they had been, but to be different. Now that's the kind of thing God wants us to do today. Not just be sorrowful if the church has all been broken apart and all oh, woe is us and we're so sorry and we wish things had been different. No. It needs to create zeal, energy, fear that galvanizes us into action. That's the kind of sorrow that does some good. Now let's, let's go on. Let's see, where was I here? Verse 6 of chapter 13 in Nehemiah. But all this time was not I at Jerusalem, for in the two and thirtieth year of Artaxerxes, or Ahasuerus, uh, Esther's husband, king of Babylon, came I to the king, and after certain days obtained I leave of the king. No, that's Artaxerxes, king of Babylon. We were talking about uh, king of Persia, Ahasuerus. Now I got that confused in my mind. Let's go on. And I came to Jerusalem and understood of the evil that Eliashib did for Tobiah in preparing him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And it grieved me sore. Therefore I cast forth all the household stuff of Tobiah out of the chamber. 
someone who tries to move in and be a part of the priesthood, uh, and they're not commissioned by God to do so, has to be kicked out. Uh, we cannot take something upon ourselves. That is uh, presumptuousness, and presumptuousness is not of God. And in fact, God calls it witchcraft, puts it in the same category. There are a lot of self-ordained teachers today in the church, and they had better fear. Presumption, presumption is as witchcraft. Do not try to be something God has not commissioned you to be, or you will answer to him. Then I commanded, and they cleansed the chambers, and therefore brought I again the vessels of the house of God with the meat offering and the frankincense. And I perceived that the portions of the Levites had not been given them. He keeps bringing tithing up over and over and over here again. Must be important. For the Levites and the singers that did the work were fled everyone to his field. They were going out making their own living because people were not supporting them as Scripture said they should. Then contended I with the rulers and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place. Then, then uh, so he straightened it out. So you better get this done, get it done right. Then brought all Judah the tithe of the corn and the new wine and the oil to the treasuries. And I made treasures over the treasuries and so on. Uh, then he saw another problem, verse 15. In those days saw I in Judah some treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and lading asses, as also wine, grapes and figs, and all manner of burdens, which they brought to Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So they were doing commerce, doing business, doing their work on the Sabbath. And I testified against them in the day wherein they sold food. There dwelt men of Tyre also, therein which brought fish and all manner of ware, and sold on the Sabbath to the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. It's a curious thought that Jerusalem in the Middle East is pretty well landlocked. There's no major body of water anywhere near, and no major rivers, hardly a creek near, and yet they were bringing in fish. <coughs> now, if they'd caught them clear over in the Mediterranean, 50, 60 miles away, uh, and put them on a donkey, how did they get them to Jerusalem to sell before they smelled so much like fish, nobody would buy it. Did they bring them clear from the Sea of Galilee? I forget now how far that is. must be 50, 60 miles up there. Uh, by donkey? They didn't have cars. They didn't have planes. They didn't have air-conditioned trucks. Uh, makes me wonder if the real Jerusalem had a lot of water nearby where fish could be caught fresh and sold and still be fresh. Just another little thing that comes up when we're studying where the real Jerusalem might be. Uh, verse 17, Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, What evil thing is this that you do and profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers this, and did not our God bring all this evil upon us and upon this city? Yet you bring more wrath upon Israel by profaning the Sabbath. We'd better be very, very careful with the Sabbath. And it came to pass that when the gates of Jerusalem began to be dark before the Sabbath, I commanded that the gates should be shut and charged that they should not be opened till after the Sabbath. And some of my servants said I at the gates that there should be no burden brought in on the Sabbath day. He was going to be sure. Now here's you approved scripture too, which I think is excellent. Uh, this is a sidelight. 
But there are those within the church of God today who are saying that the day begins at sunrise instead of sunset. Mark this one well. If you want to disprove that to somebody who brings it to you, Nehemiah 13, verse 19. It came to pass that when the gates of Jerusalem began to be dark before the Sabbath, darkness was beginning to come, dusk, twilight, at the beginning of the Sabbath. So the day begins and ends at sunset, not sunrise, and here's a scripture to prove it. I don't care what arguments they bring. Statements like this cannot be denied. Anyway, going on, verse 20. So the merchants and sellers of all kind of ware lodged without Jerusalem once or twice. Then I testified against them and said to them, Why do you hang around the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. And from that time forth came they no more on the Sabbath. <laughs> I like Nehemiah's zeal, his energy. His, what did we read in 2 Corinthians 7, 11? The zeal, the fear, the action that we need to have in coming to worship God with our whole hearts. Nehemiah wasn't about to put up with this, and he says, I am going to lay hands on you. And he didn't mean to pat him on the back. And he said it in such a ferocious way that they were fearful of coming back. And I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and that they should come and keep the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. They were to make sure those gates were shut and nobody could come in and do business on the Sabbath. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. So Nehemiah is saying, I may be a human being, I may have my problems, but Father, remember me on how zealous I was in making sure People didn't break your Sabbath day. Most of the church of God would not tolerate a ruler or a leader in the mold, the mode, or the mold, I'm trying to say, of Nehemiah today. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. You try to tell me what to do, and I'm going to be upset. He meant business. Verse 23, In those days also saw I Jews that had married wives of Ashdod, of Ammon, and of Moab. And their children spoke half in the speech of Ashdod and could not speak in the Jews' language, but according to the language of each people. They'd married these wives, and they were with the children. Father was off working during the day, so the mother taught them her own language. And this really bothered Nehemiah to hear Israelite homes speaking the language of the Ammonites and the Moabites and so on. And I contended with them and cursed them and smote certain of them and plucked off their hair and made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons or for yourselves. It was a time of renewal, and Nehemiah was showing great indignation. He not only cried aloud and spared not, he jerked their hair out. How many of us would put up with that today in the church of God? Is it something that may 
at some point have to be done. I don't know. You can lead a horse to water. You can't make him drink, but I guess you can snatch him bald. <laughs> Pull his mane out, jerk his tail off. Whatever needs to be done, I guess. What's it going to take for people to get it? I wonder. I really wonder. Then he went on to explain. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations was there no king like Solomon, who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, even him did outlandish women cause to sin. Solomon sinned greatly against God with his thousand wives and concubines. And it says that his heart was turned from God by those women who had their own ideas. So Nehemiah uses that example. Solomon, yes, was a king who, for the most part in his life, was righteous, but he had a problem there. Shall we then hearken to you to do all this great evil, to transgress against our God in marrying strange wives? or marrying outside the church, we would say today, or allowing people in the church who are not truly converted, who have not sacrificed themselves to become slaves of Christ. We are committed to be slaves, to present our bodies a living sacrifice, And we have a great slave master, but still God puts us in that category. The slave does whatever the master bids. Whatever Christ says, every word of this book we are to live by. We're not to diminish or let any of it fall to the ground. We tend to be selective, don't we? Well, I'm very, very strong about this, but man, I don't want to do that. So we interpret it and decide what parts of God's Word we want to keep. We always condemn the Protestants for that, didn't we? They only have certain verses they go through in the Bible. Maybe they, some churches have 10, some have 15, some might have 20 or 30 they like. And include Psalms and Proverbs because they're inspirational. We're supposed to observe them all. But even we tend to pick out those things that we're going to be strong about and those things that we decide we don't really want to do or follow through on. We can't have that luxury. We're to bring every thought into the captivity of Christ and keep every word of God, and we are to look at them honestly and not gloss over them if we don't like them. And one of the sons of Joeda, the son of Eliashab, or Sheb, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Now, that may be something that has to be done here at the end. When the plumb line is used and the true righteousness of God is not shown in the fruits and the lives of some people, we may have to chase them from us. with God's blessing. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. 
would better be very, very careful in our attitude toward the ministry. I had better be very careful in my attitude toward the ministry. Just because you are one doesn't mean that you're exempt from all this we've been talking about. How much carefulness did Paul advise Timothy to take in his life? So don't let them despise the office that you have. Make sure that you live up to God's ways so that they can look to you as a leader and as a guide. So the, and Malachi echoes that when he addresses the Israel there. He tells the priests how they had better act and how they'd better be. So they have to respect the job God has given them to do themselves, and then we all are supposed to respect that job as well. And if we go about trying to put down the ministry or find fault with, hey, all it does is make us unhappy. All it does is frustrate us. You know, brethren, we don't have time to find fault with others, do we? Think about those who got so angry with Herbert Armstrong and tried to ferret out every sin that he ever committed. Some of them even wrote books about his sins. Now, did they then have a wonderful, outgoing, positive, emotional and mental outlook on life? No. They were bitter. They were angry. They were spending their lives trying to destroy a man who had already died rather than living the way of God. They wasted their time and their lives trying to discredit someone else. Now you can get a mad on about the ministry and what in the church has. And all it does is frustrate you, anger you, make you embittered, and it ruins your life. There isn't time for that. Where in Scripture does it say, repent of the minister's sins? It says, repent of your sins. The ministers have to repent of their own. Now, can you find fault? Most likely. Does it do you any good? Unlikely. It can ruin your life. It can ruin your attitude. It can make you live in negativity, frustration, and spend your days talking behind the scenes and backstabbing and cursing the ministry. Is that a godly outlook on life? No, it is not. God has commissioned us to do His work, not criticize others who are trying to do His work. We had better be careful. We can destroy ourselves and lose our salvation in trying to prove that others shouldn't have salvation. There's nothing in the Bible whatsoever that talks about us trying to put down each other and backbite and try to undermine and undercut. Nothing in there about us doing that as a way of life. Yet many do that to their own harm and hurt. What, is it, what does it gain you? 
You know, as Dr. Phil says, how's it working for you? Make you happy? Make you fulfilled? No, it makes you frustrated, angry, upset. Not working too good for you if you're doing that. It hurts you a whole lot more than the ones that you're trying to destroy. I don't think it was hurting Herbert Armstrong at all when a book was written about his sins and he was laying in his grave. Did it bother Mr. Armstrong to have that book written about him? <laughs> oh, come on, you know. Didn't hurt him a bit. But the guy that wrote it was sure angry. Bitter. Hateful. And he died that way. Angry, bitter, and hateful. Who suffers the most? The hator or the hatee? I think that should be obvious. And why do we let ourselves go there? But so many in the church have. It ruins their lives. So, he says, Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. Thus cleansed I them from all strangers and appointed the wards of the priests and the Levites, every one in his business. Put them back to work doing the things they ought to be doing. And I think that has to be done here at the end. The ministry is going a lot of different directions and trying to do different works that they think are the work of God, and they aren't. We need to find out what God's work is and get it done. And when the ministry is a part of the remnant begins to come, they have to be put to the right business. That which God wants done, not which they perceive they think their job is. And for the wood offering, at times appointed, that is, providing the sacrifices for the burnt offerings, and for the first fruits, and we are part of the first fruits, so it ties in again with the church. We are here to be prepared as first fruits. You know, you, if you're a peach or an apple or a fig on a tree, you can't fix the fig next to you that looks bird-pecked to you. can't fix that one. The only one that you can ripen and prepare and make juicy is you. So being angry at the faults of other figs, peaches and pears and apples, doesn't accomplish a thing. It frustrates you, but it doesn't make them what they ought to be. In fact, it might even detract from that because you might discourage them and frustrate them. And God says if we do that, then we need a millstone tied around our neck and be thrown into the ocean. If you frustrate, if you turn away, if you discourage people with your tongue, and God says you need a millstone tied around your neck. And he will. Because that's not the kind of attitude he's seeking. Now, I've been talking in this long series about keeping the focus. And the focus really comes back to will we prepare ourselves as the bride of Christ not worry about the one next to us and what they lack and what they need, but putting on our own garments of righteousness and finding in the Scriptures of God what He wants done. We've gone through 
showing here in Nehemiah and Esther and uh, Ezra that the temple needs to be rebuilt, just as it says in Haggai and Zechariah. And now we're beginning to understand, I think, from Daniel 9 and other scriptures that even the walls of physical Jerusalem need to be built in troublous times, and that is a part of what the end-time work is. And then building the spiritual temple certainly is the important part. And being sure that we are like our Savior Emmanuel. That our character, our thoughts, our minds are positive, uplifting, full of love, and sacrifice, and giving. Because he gave everything he had for us. And we need to give everything we have to him. And there's no time to put down and fight others. There's time to fight ourselves only. So let's get the right focus on that as well. So that we can present ourselves before God. Each of us must. As righteous, as holy, as clean. Because we want to be those who bear the vessels of the eternal. So we'll conclude Nehemiah and we'll conclude this series with that.